Before we begin, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors at Audible. Now that the weather's getting nicer, I'm back to reading and listening to books in the park. And with Audible, it's never been easier. Every month, I get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. In addition, I get access to news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. If you go to audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast, you'll get two free audiobooks on us. Download thousands of titles offline anytime, anywhere. Having trouble deciding what to pick? Audible lets you keep your credits for up to a year. Find your summer read and support your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. All right, fellas, here's a question for you. Uh, no, 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 no. You are the guest this week. We're switching things up. So we, and by we, I mean Mike, because you know I didn't do any homework. Mike is going to read you a question that you're going to answer, Kyle. Mike, do your thing. Kyle, we want to know, how has how you've watched movies changed since we started this show, you know, two seasons ago? Admittedly, I don't know if it's related to the show or sort of this period we've been in without movies, but I would say that I'm a lot less zealous with my answers, I think, nowadays. Like, don't get me wrong. When I'm waiting for a movie I know is going to be good, you know, I'm still there. I'm still in my Spider-Man costumes and stuff, right? But if I have an outwardly negative opinion of something or I don't necessarily understand it, I'm not inherently going to be quick to jump and say, okay, this is bad or, oh, it's mid or whatever, because I think ultimately there could be value for someone. And I think if nothing else, I now get to try to figure out who that someone is. Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, it's the final film of the 1990 induction year. I have the opportunity to warm up our guest seat and discuss 1948's Red River. So, folks, as you may have noticed from the opening question, we're doing things a little differently. Uh, When we reached the final movie of our first season, we figured, well, obviously it has to be Citizen Kane as the final film that we cover in that season. That makes sense. The one that's hailed the big one. But not every season has a Citizen Kane. In fact, only the first one did. In this case, we were trying to think about what should we end the season on? Should we try and find the biggest name we can? Should we pick the biggest movie we can? And, and we decided to kind of go the opposite direction with this. Uh, we thought it might be a fun way to wrap up our seasons going forward with just us. Just the folks you've been, in theory, listening to for the last 24 episodes. Uh, so to shake things up a bit, rather than Kyle just jumping on here and there throughout episodes, contributing little things for which movies he's watched, we decided it's just going to be me, Tom, and Kyle, in this case, uh, gathered around an old digital fireplace at our as we round up our wagons to, to talk about 
Howard Hawks' Red River. So, Kyle, how does it feel to take off your producer's hat and be sitting here in the uh, guest chair, as it were? I'm excited to be here. Curious to see what it's like to be on uh, on the other side. And, you know, what a great movie to do it for, too. Our second John Wayne movie of this show, right? Our second John Wayne movie of the show, and also our second Howard Hawks movie this season. Wow. And uh, wildly different. Yeah, yeah, because we already covered Bringing Up Baby, which is a Howard Hawks, and now we'll be talking about uh, Red River. So normally I ask the folks that we have on why they picked this film, but of course we kind of told you, Kyle, you're coming on for, for Red River so what I want to ask this before we get into the film itself. Before you watched it, what were you expecting from this movie? What what was your kind of preconceived notions on what you were going into with Red River? I'm not sure. Um, admittedly, outside of what we've tackled on the show, my understanding or my um I guess I just haven't seen a lot of westerns, admittedly, just pure and simple, right? Um I grew up um, did not have a uh, family that uh, saw a lot of movies, so I sort of had to kind of get a sense of my own tastes, right? Um, so Westerns were just sort of this old, old stuff, right? And then a, a little known uh, video game company called Rockstar Games created a video game called Red Dead Redemption that sort of changed my perception of that and just everything. And I know Tom's looking at me like, fuck you, man, but like, I think that is just another indication of like, again, how certain genres transcends mediums and whatnot. And like how I think people who otherwise wouldn't give things an opportunity or a chance can kind of be reintroduced, you know, in a new light and a new perspective with a new protagonist. And so I didn't, (laughs) to answer your question, it was essentially somewhere between uh, what I had experienced with Red Dead Redemption in terms of its uh, interactivity and uh, somewhere uh, between The Searchers, which for me was like a Western, but I just was sort of whelmed by. Now, I mean, obviously we covered on the show and I recognize its significance, but as somebody who hasn't seen like the Fistful of Dollars trilogy or anything like that, like that feels sort of more of a laid back film in comparison, if that's fair to say. Well, it's... Honestly, I think it's interesting you say that and actually, you know, kind of, I feel like stuff we've danced around and talked about on the show in the past is just like, uh, with, with a lot of old movies, you know, it's about, um, reception or perception, uh, accessibility, how you can get introduced to something. And I think a lot of times it's about keeping things alive and, uh, however you find your way into something, it's always good to have an open mind. So like Kyle kind of getting opened up to this world through a video game you know we may laugh about it like ha whatever but like it is actually you know it's a new way to get people into these things because uh red river is not uh on netflix or anything it's not uh, a movie that's playing all the time and if you don't have the parents or an older brother or uncle or family friend or whatever to introduce you to this shit it's gonna be the things that actually come out while you're young and alive where they talk about all these things that I watched and this, this movie and that movie influenced Red Dead Redemption, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's a reason why, uh, whatever your feelings about Quentin Tarantino are, he's keeping cinema alive by saying, Oh, I took all these influences for this movie and blah, blah, blah. And I'll give you like a whole bibliography. So, uh, I, I do actually like, uh, that Kyle 
came with that answer. Um, but uh, qu- quick, quick thing. Uh, obviously, in this episode, I'm Thomas Dunson. Uh, Kyle, <laughs> Ky- Kyle is obviously Matt. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, you're Groot, right? Yeah, Mike? yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, no, you're Groot. Tom, Tom, Tom. Call me what I am. My whole life, I've been Cherry Valance, the guy who shows up and you go, is there something a little, you know, about that guy? Get in no, the vibe. I mean, Get in listen, the vibe. maybe maybe within in other situations, but I think in this show, it's more <laughs> of a case of you're the guy who does like all the hard work or whatever. <laughs> and I'm the one that just like just constantly demeans you. And like, it's just like, yeah, whatever. Like, just go feed, feed everybody. Fucking listen, idiot. I don't Tom, care. I in fairness, the last time I was at your place for a barbecue, you did stare off into the distance and go beef. Beef to make them strong. Beef <laughs> to make them grow. Um, I, I want to say, Tom, to your point about accessibility, another element of this is that there are Western... You know, like Kyle just talked about, uh, he's never seen the Fistful of Dollars trilogy, the Man With No Name trilogy, but said, well, I think compared to that... So he already has a perception of that. There are certain Westerns that we absorb through cultural osmosis, even if we've never seen them. The, the yeah. Sergio Leone films are that way. Uh, High Noon is that way, either because they have iconic titles or, you know, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is an iconic title. You know that, even if you don't know anything else about the film. High Noon has some iconic imagery. The Searchers has some iconic imagery. So we absorb all that. A fascinating thing about Red River, unless you are a film person looking at lists of the greatest films. So if you look at any list of the greatest Westerns, Red River's going to be there. The AFI's top 10 Westerns of all time. Red River is there. Any conversation about great films, it's there. But Red River has not permeated the culture the way that other Westerns have. The first season Westerns we did, High Noon, The Searchers, those are, you know, even if somebody hasn't seen all of it, they've seen that shot of John Wayne in the doorway, or they know Gary Cooper with the, you know, with the gun at his side. They they, they know these things. High Noon is a well-known title. These things are well-known. Red River is a fascinating one because it is a great movie. It's, it's it is one of the greatest westerns, but it has it not is. it does not have the cultural cachet of something like The Wild Bunch or even Howard Hawks's other famous western Rio Bravo. Rio Bravo is arguably has more iconography associated with it even though you're n- you're going to find few people who would tell you that Rio Bravo is a better movie than Red River. Well, I'm one of those people. Gotcha. But I do think Red River is a masterpiece. Yeah, but, I know Red a yeah. Jump, no, but jumping off of that, I do think it is because a thing we're learning, even through, through two seasons of the show, I think Kyle would even would, would be able to say this, is that the Western is not even really, it's hard to even say it's a genre because it's so fluid and all of the Westerns we've covered and will continue to cover and just talk about in general they all are so different from one another and they all, and I think the thing that makes red river, not as long standing in the public consciousness or as influential or obviously influential. I'm sure there's, you know, like there's definitely some, there will oh, be yeah. blood we're gonna, in this movie. Oh, there's some star Wars in this movie too. And we're going to get into it. Well, yeah. But I think it's that this movie doesn't have like the structure or it doesn't introduce a structure the way like High Noon introduces this interesting real-time structure. The Searchers has this interesting structure. Uh, Rio Bravo. I mean, literally, how many genre movies after Rio Bravo just took that story 
and said, yeah, we're just doing Rio Bravo, but here. I mean, John Carpenter, almost every movie he's done is Rio Bravo, or at least ends in an assault on some compound, even fucking Halloween. And I mean, Assault on Precinct 13. You know who else uh, did some incredible remakes of Rio Bravo? Howard Hawks. <laughs> Howard Hawks, who just kept making it. Um, but I also think to that point, another element, and we talked about this, this is a nice little bookend, honestly, and, and we couldn't have planned it this way. When we talked about our first episode of the season was all about Eve. Yeah. And obviously that's a more famous movie, more famous title, won a bunch of Oscars. But when we talked about all about Eve many moons ago, we talked about why that hasn't permeated the culture in the same way some of the other films we talk about have, the same way Sunset Boulevard has. And it's because I talked about, you know, I was trying to cut that trailer for the season and there was just no iconic imagery from All About Eve. All About Eve isn't parodied or lampooned beyond Fasten Your Seatbelt, it's going to be a bumpy night. There's not a lot of recognizable iconography in All About Eve. So it doesn't survive the same way Sunset Boulevard has a lot of recognizable iconography. And I think Red River does not have, it has the same problem. It's a great movie that just does not have the, there's nothing I could do to spoof Red River that somebody would go, oh, that's Red River, or I could learn Red River that way, you know? Not to say that this movie isn't a populist movie and a movie that isn't fun to watch, but I think this movie is a little more, uh, I I don't know, emotional. It's not about the action. It's not about, it's not a rip-roaring adventure. It's kind of depressing. Mm. where uh those other it's it's kind of like the same way all about eve all about eve doesn't have that um murder noir structure that sunset boulevard has that kind of propels you and has that easy to sit down and watch structure where all about eve is more about the characters and the emotions and the thematic heft like which is like this there's violence in this it ends in a nice little fist fight uh you know there's the raid on the 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 gambling camp or what and whatnot but this isn't an action movie this is a Western in dressing only, really. I mean, there's talk about, oh, the Indians, if we go this way, the Indians might come. I mean, they have one shootout with, it's not, it's more like Howard Hawks' Once Upon a Time in the West compared to Rio Bravo's A Fistful of Dollars. It's not, it's just not as mainstream, I guess you would say, despite still being a easy to digest watchable movie. But I would counter that, and I, I would want to refine what you're saying there a little bit, because I would counter that it's not a Western in our modern conception of the Western, because yes. the Western and what we accept as the Western has narrowed so much, because next season, we're going to be talking about My Darling Clementine. Yeah. And for a good long while, My Darling Clementine was the definitive Wyatt Earp shootout at the OK Corral, gunfight at the OK Corral movie. Yeah. Uh, and now we have Tombstone, and every alpha male dude knows tombstone they don't know my darling clementine and part of that and i like tombstone i like tombstone quite a bit but part of that is tombstone is a modern western it's a cowboy gun shoot him up western my darling clementine pointedly chooses to focus more on wyatt earp's romance and yes. the actual doc holiday gunfight stuff is secondary the western used to be a much more broad genre that could do a lot more things and i think that in a way what happened is you know the western kind of was viewed as a little creaky i mean we're also looking at something where red river is 1948 we're looking at to me the real start 
you know, because uh, w- what year is Oxbow Incident? Oxbow Incident's around this time, I think. Oh, boy. Let me. I'll I'm looking it up now. Uh, yeah, Oxbow Incident's 43, right? Yeah. So 43, 48. We're, we're moving, you know, in the 40s, our Westerns, you know, post-stagecoach are starting to become less just pure actioners and more parables, you know? They're, yeah. they're, and then by the time we get to the 50s, our Westerns are starting to become self-reflective, like, critical views of America. You know, the, the idea yeah. of the bright and shining cowboy is gone. If you think about John Wayne before Red River, he's the shining hero, right? He's just the upstanding hero. Red River is the first point where he starts playing a darker character, and then that's where he is. Every time, he's much more ambiguous, he's much more dark. So that happens here in 50s westerns, and that starts to die out, and then the Italians take up the westerns and make them very, very sensationalist. And yes, it is easy now in our vantage point, when that's sort of filtered through, for us to look at the work of Leone and say there's a lot of political commentary in that, um, and even Corbucci, but also there's a ton of those Italian westerns flooding over here. And as much as a Quentin or a Robert Rodriguez can write you a 70 page essay on the political subtext of Navajo Joe, most people <laughs> were going to see Navajo Joe because yeehaw, Burt Reynolds is kicking ass, cowboy bang bang. And we just kind of like, well, n- you know, I-, I think the western is narrowed in that way. It's definitely narrowed, and I think a thing that... Kyle will let you talk at some point. I'm so Uh, sorry, Kyle. I mean, it's a lot of context we're kind of laying down before we get into your view, because you are admittedly not the biggest uh, film historian, and you're coming to this with fresh eyes. So we're kind of trying to lay down the track for people. I I think a lot of what you're saying, Mike, is very accurate, and I think it's because we we aren't taking into... We haven't yet, and I'm going to now take into account the rise of Westerns on TV which mm-hmm. is actually where I think yeah. Red River shows its biggest influence because mm-hmm. every goddamn Western show, Gunsmoke, yeah, all of those Bonanza. things, were, were all wagon train with yeah. delivering yes. the cattle shows where every episode was the same. And there was, it's not as dark as Red River because it's TV in the 50s, but it's there's the older stagehand, there's the younger guy who he's trying to rate, train and become the new guy when he takes over. Clint started on one of these. Bert started on one of these. Peckinpah kind of got in at the end there, created his own that was showing a little bit of what Peckinpah would do, but still restrained by TV. Um, so like everything with movies, when TV came about, oh, we got to do big, bright colors and three hour musicals. The Western, if you wanted to still make Westerns, which at a certain point, only the Italians were really doing, was we have to become action and sensation and it's loud and colorful and this and that. And you're not. And Red River, that this whole thing is not conducive since you could watch red river like five times a week for 14 straight years on tv uh so red river kind of got kneecapped by its easily transplantable to tv structure where there's not much explosions shooting a gun doesn't cost that much and you just reuse the same sets over and over again uh so red river kind of got fucked by tv and uh, Westerns had to uh, change to that. Speaking of which, should we just not do season three and just make this a Gunsmoke podcast? Just an episode-by-episode Gunsmoke show? I mean, it would take us as long as it would to do this show, because, good lord, that show ran forever. Yeah, and, like, back when those seasons were, like, 50 episodes apiece or whatever. Yeah, 
Yeah, there's a reason why TV stars didn't become movie stars because they didn't have any goddamn time. They were spending 50 years out of their week making these shitty-ass shows. All right, Kyle, real quick before you even go into more Red River talk, and we'll read the statement from the registry and everything, but real quick, Gunsmoke or, Bona- or, Gunsmoke or Bonanza? Which is your preferred uh, long-running Western show, Gunsmoke or Bonanza? I feel like Gunsmoke sounds like a better name to me, just having absolutely no context what either one of those are. So I'm going with Gunsmoke. That's something I would throw on like a decal somewhere, you know? Yeah. Listen, I'm a branded man. <laughs> branded. <laughs> branded. What we're going to do, uh, I think, is what if we we're going to read the registry statement like we usually do much earlier in these episodes. And then I want to hear Kyle's first impressions. Because Kyle, you've watched it. You watched it twice, right? You said. I watched it four times. Yeah, okay. So here is what the National Film Registry had to say. Director Howard Hawks' second Western was also his first collaboration with John Wayne. Based on Borden Chase's novel, The Chisholm Trail, the film stars Wayne as a headstrong frontiersman Tom Dunson. On his way to seek his fortune in Texas, Dunson splits off from the wagon train with which he'd been traveling and leaves behind his fiancée. Not long afterward, Dunson and his companion, an old camp cook, Walter Brennan, see smoke on the horizon and turn back to find the travelers, including his fiancée, murdered in an Indian raid. The only survivor is a young boy, Matthew Garth, Mickey Coon, orphaned in the raid and subsequently adopted by Dunson. In time, Dunson becomes the most powerful cattle baron in the territory, but adult Garth, played by Montgomery Clift in his first film appearance, eventually rebels against Dunson's tyranny and strikes out on his own away from his vengeful mentor. Garth, leading his own cattle drive, becomes Dunson's most formidable rival. The film is distinguished by a stirring Dimitri Tiomkin score and black-and-white cinematography by Russell Harlan. The cast includes John Ireland, Joanne Drew, and both Harry Carey Sr. and Harry Carey Jr. Hawks reportedly spent $1 million over budget and several months over schedule, but the result was a $4 million hit. So largely a synopsis, and also mostly focused on the opening scene. I also think some... Is, is all of that correct? Is Red River his second Western? I thought it was Hawks' first Western. Am I getting this? I mean, that dude worked a lot. He probably made something beforehand. Are they talking about the big sky? What could they be saying was his first West? I, I'm, I, I'm getting thrown by that, and I'm getting thrown by... I guess this is technically Montgomery Clift's... It's, this was the first movie he shot, but it came out second because of the lawsuit. Yes, so it was The Search comes out first, or does The Search come out? They both come out the same year, The Search come, yeah. and, and Red River, but I guess The Search comes out first. I thought I had it coming out second. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm, I'm so thrown by this fucking... I could have sworn that that goddamn Red River was his first Western, and I don't understand. I mean, listen, it might be incorrect, because I'm looking, and I, 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 I don't know what... I don't be. see another West... Because I, I was like, is it... I don't is it either. The Big Sky comes out in 50... He only did a... So, th- he only did a few Westerns. He only did, yeah. like... We'll get into that. We'll get into his Westerns. We'll get into everything. I don't know what the registry statement is doing here. It's throwing me off immensely. Uh, but, Kyle... Um, they- Big Sky well, still came out after Red River, so I don't yeah, know what the fuck they're talking about. Kyle, you saw I, I I've seen Red River before, Tom's seen Red River before. What was your experience like seeing it for the first time? I enjoyed it a lot. Um, you know, I had never seen all well, outside of the searchers. Um, I'm not a big John Wayne 
person. I haven't seen a lot of those films, so any opportunity to see something new is good. And this is easily between the two, my favorite performance of his. Um, you know, again, I love just the cinematography in, in this movie too. Again, to go back to like the, I guess to connect it, the moment I think I made the realization or I guess the connection between this movie and like Red Dead Redemption was, I guess, I think about halfway through the movie when they're uh, herding the cattle and whatnot and they're going through like the river. And I think there's a particular shot where I feel like they get it like stuck on the lantern of, um, what do you call it? The um, the wagon. And, and I think it was just like some of those moments where like not a whole lot is necessarily happening. It's just an elongated version of you know, these cattle just walking among the uh, the river and whatnot, but it just sets a tone and just sets an atmosphere and it like couples with the, the, the score that's playing in the background and you just kind of want to just really just kind of just take it all in and sit back. So I, I really just kind of appreciated those moments that the film had to offer. Yeah, and of course, obviously the generational conflict, you know, between um, Garth and... Um, Whatchamacallit, I can't remember. Thomas Dunson. Yes, Thomas Dunson. Thank you. So I liked a lot of it. So I was, I was, not that I was going into it thinking I'm not going to appreciate this movie, but knowing it was at least a two and a half plus hour movie, I was surprised how engaged I was throughout it, considering how old it is, I guess. It's, it's certainly one that, I mean, look, we addressed up top how it's not the most well known Western. But it's definitely one that I I think defies expectations in a lot of ways. I think that... So the Criterion of Red River comes with the book that it's based on, uh, Blazing Guns on the Chisholm Trail. Mm -hmm. And the book is much darker. There's no fiancé for Thomas Dunson in the book. It's just he leaves the wagon train behind and then it it just gets fucking wrecked and he picks up the kid. Uh, Dunson is a lot more cold. Um, you know, I, I know that it's easy to watch this movie and go, oh, this is a really cold character Wayne is playing, but Dunson in the book is certainly a lot colder. Oh, wow. Um, the Groot is a much smaller character. The most interesting thing is that the book is very explicitly about, like, the Civil War destroyed the South and ravaged Texas and, and all of this. It's much more directly about the Civil War. And in fact, the second chapter of the book is about adult Garth coming back from the war in his Confederate uniform. Oh, wow. And, and the, the, the main woman uh, in the film, uh, he doesn't just meet her randomly. He meets her in a saloon where she's betrothed to some other guy, and there's a bar fight where a man gets killed, and, and he's like, I, I forget exactly how it works out, but, but she tells him about how, like, you know, a man in a uniform like yours taught me to read, and it's, like, just some real, like, blazing guns on the Chisholm Trail is a real, like, Western novel. It's it's everything you expect from one of those, like, it's what, uh, it's what Rick Dalton was probably reading on the set of that movie, on the set of that TV show in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when he's talking about his cowboy <laughs> novels, right? Um, the biggest difference, though, is, uh, in the book, Thomas Dunson dies. I was going to say, I didn't know if we were just going to jump right into it, because that was the first, I guess, the only real criticism I really had of it was that ending is just very abrupt and very just not satisfying, at least for me. But I love that ending. Yeah? 
I love that ending. I hated the way the book because you know my thing is what I kind of like about Red River a lot is yes, it's about a generational conflict, but you know we talked about the limiting of the Western, right, and the, the limiting of the scope of the Western. And when I bitch and moan on this show as I often do about you know air quotes tough guy movies, it's not about necessarily movies that 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 focus on guys who are fighters or even guys who are killers or anything like that. It is this self-perpetuating cycle of misery that is just like, that is, that is solely like, you know, a guy being like, I just, I'm mad all the time and there's nothing I can do about it. And I hate people. And the only way this ends is if somebody dies. And I kind of love the fact that, you know, this movie is about a generational conflict. And rather than perpetuating this this constant, you know, thing to basically be like, well, somebody has to die. It mm. does resolve with these two guys who were about to kill each other actually going, oh, yeah, fuck, yeah, you're right. Like, which really, I mean, you know, when you think about it, is kind of how a lot of these relationships really resolve. Most people, most guys who have conflicts with their fathers and strike out for independence, and who have difficult relationships with their fathers do not end up in a situation where, well, one of us is going to die right now. They end up in a situation where it's like, look, I still think you're an right asshole. Right now. But I'm saying, like, you know, it, it, it resolves with, like, you know, I, I think that guy's an asshole. I don't want to spend much time around him, uh, but I guess we kind of learn to get along. You know, it ends with, like, maybe some bitterness, but, like, it doesn't always have to be, you know, like, well, somebody has died. And, and the way it happens in the book is just, I, I don't hate it. And I think that the ending of the movie, with it just being like, you know, you two men snap out of it, and then being a little goofy at the end, is it a bit abrupt? Sure, but it's almost like a relief to kind of just see, like, oh, you're doing something different. It's not just like, well, for one of us to survive, the other must perish. It's like, yeah, holy shit, this got wild, you know, and it kind of just levels out because quite frankly, you know, maybe I'm only speaking for me here, but like every one of us uh, has stories in their family tree that if you go back, you would go, holy shit, that happened? That person almost murdered that other person and now you're both together at this wedding? How did it end up here? And you're like, it just did. It's just how it is. I've said that about the Tom, what are your thoughts on the ending of the film? Uh, I think I fall in the middle of you guys in that I think both endings make sense. I don't think one is better than the other. Uh, you, you, you know that ending in the movies only because it's old Hollywood and they weren't going to kill John Wayne and they weren't going to make it sad um, because he's not uh, like explicitly the antagonist. He's still like the father figure to this character. So there's going to be, there has to be the happy ending. Because the way you describe this to me, the ending of the book is pretty much the same, except Cherry Valance shoots him, and then Thomas shoots Cherry Valance, and Cherry dies. And then Thomas fires a few bullshit shots at Matthew because he just can't kill him, and then the gut shot kills him. I mean, it fits. I mean, this is still a story about a man, a violent man, setting himself and his son on a path of violence, a path his son doesn't want and that he's basically turned all of these people against him and everyone's with Matt. So 
you get the sense that somebody's going to stand up and prevent Matt from getting killed. I think, uh, you know, for all the bullshit or whatever about tough guy movies, I mean, when it's a movie about violence, violence is going to happen. So I think, you know, if you're going to remake this today, I think the ending from the book would fit. I also think the ending of the book may not fit as much in the movie because they soften the Thomas character a lot more by introducing yeah. the the dead fiance character and kind of contra- com- contrasting that with what Matthew's going through meeting that girl at the gambling uh, wagon train. I mean, I, th- I think there's really no wrong answer. I think both would have worked, but uh you know i think it just goes to show the kind of the magic trick of an adaptation and sometimes a change works even if the original idea still works itself you know sometimes the happy ending like mike says is a good ending too you mentioned i mean i guess you mentioned too because i guess i don't know the full extent of the book ending but you mentioned that cherry valance is involved which is more than what we get in this film. Well, we'll get into why Sherry Valance is allegedly not in this film much. Uh, <laughs> and that has more to do with uh, certain actors on set behavior, allegedly. Oh, boy. Than, uh, or, a certain, or a certain director's uh, proclivities towards a certain woman. Yeah. But also, uh, maybe John Ireland was involved with more than just the woman on set, um, which I love. Uh, John Ireland sounds like a, a, a wild individual. I, I guess my thing with the ending and having a, an air quotes happy ending is it's the same way that, you know, when we talk about the Marvel movies now and a big complaint with most superhero movies now that you hear from people is they always kill the villain. That there's no solution other than to kill the villain. There's got to kill a villain, got to kill a villain. And every villain's got to destroy the world. You got to have a big opening in the sky. When Doctor Strange ends the way it does, the first one, with that, you know, Dormammu, I've come to bargain sequence and he outsmarts it, and he finds a resolution to the problem that is different. It felt so refreshing. It felt so incredible. And we still talk about that ending today. And I think that my thing with the Red River ending and that I found so refreshing is the fact that we don't normally get that. And I understand that violence is going to happen. I, I certainly recognize the, the violent genre, the violent medium, but I do appreciate that that the resolution is an actual resolution because i feel like i i I struggle so so few movies actually resolve with a resolution you know with like an actual like all right there was a conflict and we have equitably solved that conflict and i do think that you know of course we enjoy stories about somebody who just digs in their heels and and goes out guns a-blazing but I feel like we get that so often now. And that's the only conclusion we get that I was talking to Tom and I won't say anything too specifically for anybody, but this will give it away a little bit. How there's two television shows, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, and how they choose to wrap up the stories of their protagonists. They go in very different directions. And I think that I find that immensely satisfying. I don't think that one show should have ended like the other or anything like that. I think that it's 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 important to recognize there's other ways that stories can end. And I think that the same way that we kind of love High Noon for the fact that it ends in that very particular manner, 
that is neither bleak nor cheerful. It's just kind of a melancholy. That works for that movie. Um, and obviously, we're talking about Howard Hawks. Rio Bravo is a rebuke of High Noon, but you know, there, there doesn't have to be one way that these stories are told. Well, I mean, that's kind of what I was gonna. What I was saying is that this is the story where either ending could have fit. What the ending we got fits, where there is no murder, no shootout, yeah. blah blah blah, is because this is more the better Cole Soul of westerns compared to Rio Bravo's Breaking Bad. This is a movie where there is no villain, there is no ticking clock. You know, the, uh, you, you you couldn't end a fistful of dollars in the same way because there is a bad guy, there is a a conflict that needs that can only end in violence and this is not a story where that ends you know better call soul wasn't about a fucking maniac who wants to be the baddest dude in the world so obviously it's going to end in blood and mayhem it's about a douchebag little con artist like you know this is a family uh intergenerational drama with western with you know six shooters so it could have the ending that we got and fit so i think it's all just about what the inherent story you're telling is a lot of westerns aren't tell which is what we got it before a lot of westerns aren't telling this kind of story where it can end in a calmer more uh humanly resolute fashion it's a lot of times i mean definitely more after this like we were saying how it sort of get more action oriented they're telling stories that are going to have to end in blood and uh you know it's definitely a thing where you do kind of wish uh be a little more variety even though yeah. it's still a very variety filled uh genre if you will i don't know i just think it's got the, the ending works because it's not like the other westerns i mean it's just yeah. that's just kind of the way it is that's the thing i don't need every western to end that way i don't even need most westerns to end that way i just found it i find that refreshing and that's the kind of the thing about red river in general to me is is we we're talking about it's about an intergenerational conflict you know it's when we were talking, Kyle, before you watched it the first time, I know that you were alluding to a lot of like, well, I don't really know Westerns and Cowboy this. And and one thing I said to you was, it's not really a cowboy movie. It's yes. a movie about a father and a son, well, you know, adopted son, father figure, that just happens to take place amidst cowboys. Yeah, that's the beauty of the Western. It's just, it's... It's a it's a, a setting. It's an aesthetic. It's not actually like a story with one kind. It's it could be anything you want it to be. So I want to know, Kyle, because you're talking about your perceptions of you know preconceived ideas of the Western and, and John Wayne and all that. You know, you also studied acting. That was kind of one of your focuses of study when you were younger, right? It sure was. I I want to know: was this your first time seeing Montgomery Clift in a movie? Yes. Okay. I'm curious from your perspective, think about the fact that one of the things you're getting in this movie this is 1948. Um, now, Montgomery Clift isn't talked about as much anymore, which is a shame. He was one of our great actors, um, you know, diatrically young, and one of those early kind of method actors, one of those newer type of actors alongside of James Dean. And that. Mm. I wanted to know from your perspective watching this, the interaction between old world actor John Wayne very much, you know, movie star actor John Wayne versus the more method, emotionally driven Stanislavski, Stella Adler kind of, you know, craft of acting performer that is Montgomery Clift. What was your impression of Clift and kind of just did that register to you when you were watching it that they were coming from different schools of, of performance? 
Um, I mean, I guess. I mean, admittedly, I'm not as much inch or familiar with like the different crafts and like I guess sort of how you approach one of them. I am, I guess, more interested in I don't know, I guess just how serious people take the craft. Now correct me if I'm wrong. John Wayne is sort of just stumbled into the craft, isn't necessarily grown from anything, hence sort of the apprehension between those two generations. Is that right? Yeah, I mean he'd been he'd by this time he'd been in movies for ages. He was a you know, he was in silent films that John Ford was making and all that. But by that you know the the film actors, especially coming out of the silent era, were were very much not of that methody type. It was just show up, put on your costume, say the lines. You know that that Laurence Olivier, Dusty. It's called acting kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't. When does I don't even know when Stanislavski publishes an actor prepares off the top of my head. I guess I guess that's maybe I guess maybe that's initially why why I was like sort of curious about that question because yeah I remember you had at one point made a reference probably in the Searchers episode how John Wayne essentially just plays a different character and plays it essentially identical I certainly I think Garth has a lot more or Cliff I guess has more complexity to the character but it doesn't feel that way for me in our lens because it just feels so like it feels like it translates very well to our time. You know what I mean? As opposed to sort of just, as you said, it's almost as if sort of our contemporary way of thinking has reversed that where like it used to very much just be like, Hey, you just like walk up, say the lines and whatnot. And you sort of look at that as sort of a lesser way to approach that compared to somebody who has sort of studied the craft a little bit more. So, um, this is also just a random thought too. Is uh, is Montgomery Clift like the, the or at least I guess his actor sort of type? Is that sort of the thing that's lampooned by um, Hail Caesar and Alden Ironreich's character? Or am I just totally pulling that out of nowhere? Only a little bit. I mean, what 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 Alden Ehrenreich is spoofing more so because Red River is a serious western, and you know, sure. Clift, what what uh, Alden Ehrenreich spoofing more is like the singing cowboys is the B picture guys so Gene Autry, um, uh, um, Roy Rogers those kind of guys where they were because if you ever what I love Roy Rogers don't get me wrong but if you ever watch a Roy Rogers movie it's the it's the same character and everything and it'll just be he'll show up he'll say the lines you need him to do. And then there will be two scenes where he sings songs. Like, right? Am I crazy in thinking like that's the whole thing with with Aaron Rick, right? Is he's a singing character. I mean, that's that's right? that's the whole thing. It's not even it's not Montgomery Clift even at all, because Montgomery Clift's whole thing is if you were gonna pull any kind of thing from him, it's definitely like way further down the line, but he's more Kirk Lazarus than old and error right? he's he's the method guy that people would make fun of for taking it so seriously. And you ever just hear of acting son? He's not a go- I mean, he was apprehensive about taking this role because he was an actor. He didn't want to yeah. be in one of those westerns, and you know he had to be convinced to do it. And uh, you know, he certainly didn't get along with John Wayne and Howard Hawks and their uh, much macho old Hollywood bullshit. But uh, yeah, so not uh, not even close to old and error. Like it was definitely the Tin Alley B picture, just kind of fifty five minute bullshit movies they would just crank out to fill up a double feature at the uh you know local drive throughs or whatever the fuck because that's the other thing that's worth remembering is is you know you had your a westerns and your b westerns 
Yes. And your A westerns were the ones that had depth. Your A westerns were uh like a Red River, like a High Noon, the ones that got critical recognition, the ones that got awards nominations, all of that. And then you had your B westerns which were okay, here's a guy who we found him off the street. He maybe was an actual ranch hand or whatever. He looks good in a cowboy hat. He can confident he can competently hold a gun. He can ride a horse. And every couple months you'll go to your local cinema and we'll give you a 60-minute movie where he beats the bad guys and we all go home. Like that's Gene Autry, Roy Rogers, um way earlier than that, like a William S. Hart. Uh, maybe even Harry Carey, I guess you could say. Harry Carey Sr., yeah. at least, was was a lot of yeah. that. Um, Randolph Scott, kind of. He's later. but He's later, you know. and he also had the benefit of kind of being in the uh, American Sergio Corbucci's movies. But Bud Bedecker elevated yeah. those B-movies to something more important. And it's funny. It's also just funny that this is an A picture, and not that it's funny that's an A picture, but it's just like that John Wayne had to like go to the studio and be like, this is an A picture. Give us the budget to make it an A picture. Don't don't dick around right now. And um, uh, just before we get off a cliff for now, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about them later. Oh, yeah. Maybe my controversial opinion of those early method guys who came in, him, Dean, Brando, all that. I kind of prefer Montgomery Clift. I don't know how to, what to tell you. I kind of find him a little less obnoxious and a little less uh, tick driven than those other guys you know i kind of made mention mm-hmm. on the rebel without a cause that james dean you can even see just the like oh he's acting and oh he's just so emotional and he's, and he's you know he's mumbling and you know brando's doing the mumbling thing and i watch clifton this or in like i confess you know with notoriously not good with actors alfred hitchcock like giving genuine earnest performances that don't feel like just a collection of ticks that would get you an oscar nomination if todd phillips directed it um now tom what if what can i just say can i just take a moment to say so you're saying you like montgomery clift most of that kind of generation of method actors yeah if only there was a movie where he played i don't know a spoiled rich kid in a film that's a parable about american class conflict and features a, a an overwhelming crime story that focuses on injustice and how it uh justice favors the wealthy if only there was a movie we'd be covering next season that is going to be i already got that blu-ray in my collection next season a place in the sun folks tom is going to lose his mind if that's the case montgomery best performance hands down i mean i it's probably just me not to say that brando and dean aren't good it's just one of those things where sometimes even in their best performances you just see the gears moving you see those like mumbling and you know it's just like and montgomery cliff's just like he's not doing what john wayne does not even close but he's just like he's acting he's just giving you a good human being performance like this is just a guy like there's no histrionics here it's i don't know that's i'm pretty sure i'd probably be the only person of the relatively few movie podcasts hosted by white guys who would ever make that bold claim although to be honest i'm pretty sure i i'm pretty sure quentin tarantino would probably say something that, that crazy too he's a fucking nut job he would probably be like, yeah my couple clip best performance ever made best best actor of all time yeah i love him great great i hear you 
I'm, 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 look, I'm saying I, I have not, again, I have not seen uh, any other Clifton films. Uh, I haven't really seen a lot of Brando films. Uh, just this one performance. Um, again, I, I don't prefer him over Dean. Uh, I definitely like him over Brando. Brando has always sort of, I guess, been an actor for me that I've never really uh, appreciated. Again, somebody who like is always associated with a craft, but sort of, I think we've even talked about that as a show. I think people who sort of look and, uh, want to study acting and are influenced by Brando take the wrong lessons from him. And so I don't necessarily think that is a, it's hard to say that that is, you know, to like, I, I don't know, criticize Brando for that, but it's hard for me, I guess, to sort of, uh, I don't know, consider him in that, in that similar vein, I guess. Um, you know, for me, I just, I sort of have sort of the opposite approach of just him sort of kind of being, almost more, I guess, in line with like a John Wayne sort of thing that he did just sort of kind of show up and kind of approach things and like, you know, whatever, and just happen to make things work. And I think that's sort of what perpetuates a lot of people into just thinking like, you know, <laughs> you walk up and say the line, right? It is just funny, though, that of those three guys that they all kind of like had, they and they had like their, they represented like different phases in that James Dean dies so young, so he's elevated to this icon status. Mm-hmm. Brando gave such great performances and changed the game, but then he faltered. Then he came back as an elder statement. Then he became a joke, and then he died. But he gave so much great performances, lived such a long life that people can still go back and say, oh, he was so great, even though he had his issues. Where Montgomery Cliff falls right in the middle of, he doesn't live it as long as Brando. He dies young as well, not as young as Dean, though. So he had his issues with alcohol and mental health issues and all that. And he died young. So he's just kind of falls right in that middle place of didn't die young enough to get the, uh, forever 24, forever 27, whatever the fuck Dean was when he died. And he doesn't get that elder statesman changed the game thing that, uh, Brando did. Uh, so it's just, it's just funny that like those three guys that changed with all the methods, Stanislavski, you know, active studio shit really just, they all just had, they just, represent different things i guess i don't know that's kind of funny whatever and and tom you're talking about mental health we should also note with montgomery cliff especially because it factors into this film a lot of his struggle came from the fact that he was uh he was a homosexual at a time where that was uh you know he was it was not uh you know he he struggled with that immensely that he was gay and he didn't you know and and the challenges he had with that i mean vanity fair described his death as the long suicide of montgomery cliff Wow. Uh, and he dies at 45. Um, he had told a psychiatrist he was a homosexual. You know, he struggled with that. He had a lifelong friendship with Elizabeth Taylor um, because he was confessing to her those feelings. And she apparently tried to seduce him as though to try and be like, maybe we can fix this. And it didn't uh, happen. But he he was a, a mess because of that. And I think that that factors into this film. I mean, because there is certainly... And I, I hate to be one of those. There's nothing I find more annoying uh, in contemporary uh, literary or art criticism than the uh, fact that we feel the need to project onto any time two men show any kind of connection or intimacy in a work that we go, well, they must be gay. But this movie is just chock full of gay subtext you barely have to dig for. Um, there is absolutely a queer reading of Red River, whether or not Hawks wants to say there is and whether or not hawks meant there to be there's a 
strong possibility that this movie is the Nightmare on Elm Street 2 of Westerns, where, for anyone who doesn't know, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, a very gay subtext movie that the director maintains. No, none of that's there. And Hawks apparently, and yeah. Hawks, Hawks denied it until the day he died, but the fact that they had they edited this movie to take out more of yeah. that stuff, and what we got is like the barest minimum of the gay shit that survived this movie. It's like, okay, he may not have known it going in, but once he saw the dailies and saw it cut together, he said, oh no, I made a movie about the gays. Whatever do I do? I mean, this is, look, we'll get into, I mean, there's absolutely a queer reading of this film that is about a father accepting his gay son. Um, You know, because the thing about it is like, look, Cliff was, was, was gay. And I think that, but it's not, I'm not doing that because of Cliff's personal sexuality or anything like that. But inarguably, when Cherry Valance shows up, the interaction between the two of them is extremely flirtatious. There's no argument there. You know, there's the, there's the exchange they have. I, I, I wrote it down because it's just, it's just something to behold uh, when, it's, uh, when they're both shooting their guns. And uh, Cherry Valance just goes, let me see it. You want to see mine? Only two things better than a good gun, a Swiss watch or a woman from anywhere. You ever seen a Swiss watch? Like, just that pause alone. Now, uh, there's allegations we should touch on now that John Ireland, that John Ireland, who plays Cherry Valance, was potentially, uh, let's see, where's my, I, I jotted this down. So apparently. John Ireland was having an affair with Joanne Drew on set. Uh, Ireland Drew ended up getting married, and Hawks was also trying to get with Drew, and did not, uh, yeah, did not win that. Um, apparently, Hawks later called Chase. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me see. So Borden Chase was the one who claimed that John Ireland's Cherry Valance was cut from the film because of jealousy romantic jealousy on the part of howard hawks howard hawks would later claim the Borden chase was an idiot heavy drinker and philanderer who didn't know what he was talking about and the real <laughs> reason he cut ireland's scenes was because the actor was quote always getting drunk stoned on marijuana and losing his hat and gun but there are i mean there's many many allegations about you know about who john ireland was sleeping with on set including montgomery clift uh has been heavily speculated but even if that's not the case, there's a there's a lot of homoerotic stuff in Howard Hawks's work to begin with that can't. I mean, we talked earlier this season about bringing up baby and the inclusion of the the line. I just went gay all of a sudden. Right. Which we talked about, like he had to know what that was. Then there's also the there's there's a very direct gay joke in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes because you have that sequence where Jane Russell is singing about trying, you know, why don't any of these men want me when she's in the gym? It's all these muscular men, and she's talking about how hot they are, and all the muscular men are interested in are looking at each other and lifting weights. Like, there, it's in there. So it's a very... I, I, I say all that to say, like, it's, it, it's there. It's absolutely there. Listen, in this it's, film. it's absolutely there, and 
you know, a lot of those guys at the time, him and Ford and whatever, they'll all, they always were like, oh, you know, we're just working. It's just a job. You know, we didn't put any of our personal stuff in there. I mean, you know, like they're kind of full of shit. You know, if you're making a movie, so, you know, you pick something because it's connected to you in some way. <laughs> and, um, you know, he's, you know, like between this or the criminal code or Scarface or the thing from another world. Uh, I mean, he he makes um, movies where there's clearly a star or whatever, you know, Wayne and Cliff are the stars here, but he makes movies. A lot of his movies are about groups of guys. They're about groups of dudes and what dudes do when they're together. And listen, whether he means it to or not, some gay shit's going to come through because I, 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 I don't know. I mean, it's just it's just one of those things where it's just like, I definitely think it's an Elm Street 2 situation where he probably didn't know he had a little more self-awareness in the edit. Think about like El Dorado which he makes later, you know, you have John Wayne and Robert Mitchum. Now, if you handed John Wayne and Robert Mitchum the dialogue of, you know, uh, I suppose if I tangle with him, I'd have to take you on too. Oh, you'll find him a handful by himself. If you give that to John Wayne and Robert Mitchum to say, they'll say that and there will be no other reading of that line because there is no sexual chemistry between John Wayne and Robert Mitchum. There's no way those two are going to deliver those lines and you'll go, oh, I bet they're screwing around. But because of that tension between Ireland and Clift, and because of the way that they're bringing more emotionality to that line delivery, that is there. And like Tom said, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, I'm sure Hawks probably noticed in the edit and went, well, we need to cut John Ireland out of this movie because this has a particular energy, but it's still there. It's definitely there. I mean, you know, he he brings in Richard Nyby or Christian Nyby. I'm blanking. Uh, the guy he, quote unquote, the guy who, quote unquote, directed the thing. But we all know Howard mm -hmm. Hawks actually directed yeah, the yeah. thing. from But, he, you know, he, he brought him in to re-edit the movie because uh, clearly he saw something wasn't working. And uh, uh, I think one of those things was definitely, oh, no, the gays have infiltrated my Western. <laughs> um, there are other things, too. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, there's definitely other things because it is a long movie. And yeah. And it was arguments even longer pre-release. So. Yeah, and, you know, there's arguments, I'm sure, that could be made that you could still make some trims here or there or whatnot. But, yeah, I mean, he, he, he can say he didn't mean to all he wants. And I'm sure he didn't. But he definitely I, saw it at some point. <laughs> and I think that it's, I, I think that, you know, to bring it back to something we were talking about before, Tom, when you were talking about Montgomery Clift and you and Kyle were both talking about, like, Clift being a much more subtle actor, I do think it's interesting that Montgomery Clift kind of is the perfect uh, representation of Red River in terms of it, both Clift as an actor yeah. and Red River as a film. Yep. There is a lot of depth there, but there's nothing flashy. There's yeah. very little... I mean, there's some images that I love in Red River, but, you know, I mean, there's a beautiful shot when they bury the, the guy that Dunson shoots, right? The Mexican that Dunson shoots, and they're burying him there's this incredible wide shot where the shadow of a cloud passes over a hill behind them as they're yes. burying him. Now, that is a shot that Hawks called a John Ford shot. And years later, Peter Bogdanovich would pester old Howard Hawks with questions, as he was wont to do. And Bogdanovich asked Hawks, he's like, how did you do that? Like, how did you, how did you make that shot work? What trick did you use? And Hawks responded, we saw the cloud coming, so we set up the shot. 
<laughs> I mean, that's just that's just those guys. That's the that's the shit they would say. They'd just be like, "Listen, I, it, it was work. We were just working. We did the we we knew what a, made a movie work, and we just did it." They did and, do some other. They did do one piece of visual trickery. I want to note, which is the cat. There weren't there were not as many cattle as it looks. Oh yeah, they had to the do a shot, lot of uh, photography tricks with that shit. The yeah. shot where they're panning across all of the cattle behind the fence. The way they did that is they had like the fence light up and they would pan the camera from one fence post to the other, stop recording, move the cows over to the next section, pan the camera from fence post to fence post, stop, move the cows again. So when you see that panning shot, that's the same cows repeated three times. It's like the early version of when Lucas was copy and pasting the clone troopers in Attack of the Clones. So... Or uh, Ed, just to jump off of your visual thing, I mean, just the when the the cattle drive starts and they're yeah. riding off, and you just see that there's there's more crosses of yeah. people that he's had to bury because, like he said before, a lot of people have come to try and take my land, and then you see like, oh yeah, he he's killed a lot more guys since those Mexican emissaries, <laughs> and uh, it's one of those great. It's a great shot, and it's just a great bit of visual storytelling of just, oh yeah, this is a man who will fucking kill you if he wants to. <laughs> now, uh, I, I alluded to George Lucas. I want to play a game, Star Wars Nut Kyle. I'm sure there are many, but there is one thing that many argue, uh, one element of Star Wars that was lifted from this film in particular. Do you have an idea of what it is? Oh, man. Um... Are we talking? Are, we're talking OG trilogy, or are mm -hmm. we talking? We're talking OG movie, in fact. Oh God, yeah, I don't know. There are. What you got I, from it? I don't think Lucas has ever confirmed it explicitly, but there are many who contend that when Wayne shoots the uh, the Mexican emissary off the horse, yes, claiming that he did it because he could see in his eyes he was going to draw the gun. And has that crack about pretty unhealthy job. Is that the Han shot first? That is, that is, there are many, many under the conclusion that, that Han shot first comes from that. I think on the Wikipedia wow. page for Red River, they link to Han shooting first from that. Because that is like, I mean, look, a lot of Lucas's influences were older films, were Westerns. Han Solo in general is a cowboy character, is a John mm -hmm. Wayne character. But that moment, and I think that's maybe why people get so mad about the, Greedo shooting first edit is that the original appeal of Han shooting first is what makes that Red River scene so good, which is it's not, oh, I shot the guy because, uh, you know, I felt like shooting him. It's, yeah. no, 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 I'm so experienced at this point. I can tell that this guy's a threat. I can tell he's going to draw it before you see his hand move. And that scene, I think, is so crucial too for the rest of the movie because. When we first meet Dunson, he knows what he's doing. He is sure enough that that guy is going to shoot, and he's confident enough in his claim over the land that he takes him out, but he still gives him a proper burial. But then as the movie goes on, that instinct becomes paranoia. And he's now, you know, he's, 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 ready, to, he's ready to kill a guy, you know? He's, he's ready to kill a guy, you know, he's... he's and Cl Cliff basically gives him a, a, uh, a non-fatal wound just to spare him from Thomas's cruelty. Um, I think that, and that of course all comes from 
one of the things that struck me on my most recent viewing of this, and it's an elementary thing, but it struck me, is that the, the Cliff's character is coming back from the Civil War. He's coming back from the war, but for all intents and purposes, Wayne treats him the way that like a parent treats their kid who's come home from college, which is like, oh, big man. Oh, big man, you got your degree, and now you know what you're doing. And I think the thing that's so beautiful about Red River, I have a, you know, I've sort of been, there's a a major blockbuster out in theaters, it's very popular, that I've sort of complained about a bit that, like, it just has this energy of, like, no, don't don't worry, these young whippersnappers may think they're hotshots, but this 50-year-old man is going to come in and tell them what for. And nope. I, what I, what I love about Red River is that it is a movie targeting those older people in a way and kind of telling them, like, no, have some introspection. You're freaking out because you're feeling a loss of control. It's like we were talking about with Dodsworth, how Dodsworth has that scene where he's freaking out because it's like, well, no, I know things. Why don't you want to listen to me? Thomas Dunson is Dodsworth in this film, except... Instead of Dodsworth going, I hate my son-in-law, I'm getting on a boat again. <laughs> you know, this would be like if Dodsworth decided to grab a six-shooter and go running through his mansion, you know? Dunson takes it to a much greater extreme. And, uh, you know, I think that that's so great. I think that that moment at the table when Wayne is talking and he talks about, I built something and I'm not going to be around forever, right? That moment hits me because it's just, it lets him be vulnerable and it lets him admit what this is really about. And I think that, you know, when I talked at the top about, you know, air quotes, tough guy movies, part of the problem is they don't let these people be vulnerable. When we did High Noon on season one, I said one of the things I love about High Noon is that he's scared at points. Yeah. I want my heroes to be scared. I want them to be sad. I, I make a crack sometimes about like too many action or genre movies now pay lip service to emotions by just having a character go, ah, I'm sad my wife died and moving on. And this movie really leans into that and allows us to feel why these characters are, are acting the way they do. And, and, you know, not necessarily rationalizing their emotions, but acknowledging that they're being guided by them and, and that, you know, Wayne is is near murderous to the point solely because he's fighting against the passage of time and he's fighting against a, a loss of control. And that's a thing that's true on the Chisholm Trail in the cowboy days. That's true today. That's a theme that pervades so much. And I think that, you know, I, I think this film handles that with a lot more grace and dignity uh, than other movies do. I think Westerns used to be able to do that, too. I mean, I love the ending of Shane, uh, which we'll cover in a future season, and I think a lot of movies take the... I mean, Tom can attest to this, too, how many movies have the ending of uh, the main character, who's a big shoot 'em up guy, walks away because he's like, you know what, this girl in this town, they're better off without me. I'm such a mess. You know, that's an ending in everything. But... yeah. I think very rarely does a movie that does that ending understand what Shane understood, which is he needs to be genuinely sad about that. When Shane's talking to that kid and telling him, like, there's no living with a killing, with a killing, it changes you. Like, you need to actually feel, you need to feel that he is 
miserable about the fact that he's walking away. A movie that Tom and I both love, Tom loves more, but like Streets of Fire works because Walter Hill understands why Shane ends the way it does. I think yeah. too many movies don't get why Shane ends the way it does. I think too many movies do not get that Thomas Dunson is an old man losing control. I think if this were made today, Thomas Dun- Dunson may be an unstoppable murder machine as opposed to part of what I love. One of my favorite images in this movie is Dunson. You know, it's, it's John Wayne walking with his hand on his side, his gun in his other hand, just saunt like sloping and desperately trying to walk over to Montgomery cliff when they're about to have that shootout. And then the fist fight, because he looks pathetic. You know? Yeah. It's not cool. It's not badass. It's not any of those things. You're just looking at this guy and you're like, he's so driven by hate. And look at what it's done to him. I I just think that that image and that scene is extraordinary. Which, you know, I think is uh, the flip side of that coin is executed pretty perfectly and unforgiven, you know? Mm. Yeah. In that there's kind of that almost relationship with Clint and the the young kid that joins and he's a big talker. Oh, I'm this, I'm that. And Clint's like, yeah, I was that when I was a kid. I, I really bad. I didn't like being that. And that the, the movie kind of just, re- it's, it's saddest thing is just like, he's always going to be that guy. Yeah. That the, the saddest thing is that for all his want and needs and trying to be a good guy, it's just, he is a man of violence and this is like the one time in his life that his violence is going to be wrought for something good. But even he knows it's like deserves got nothing to do with it. I'm killing you just because I'm a killer. Like yeah. if I wasn't a killer, I couldn't have come in here and killed everybody. And uh, yeah, so maybe maybe one example of a movie after Red River that is explicitly in con- conversation with Red River. Yeah. Uh, Clint Eastwood knew what he was doing. <laughs> I, I feel like uh, we do. Before we move on to other things, which I don't know if I don't know how much longer we're going to talk, but I just feel like I wanted to get into uh, me and Kyle have both said I've said on other episodes, Kyle has said here, we're not the biggest John Wayne guys, but this is like easily his best performance. I mean, it's between this and searchers for me. Searches is searches is close, but I do think it's just that. I think he's just given a little more. You you just see like in searchers he's kind of like one thing the whole time and he he kind of changes at the end and not that it's I'm not gonna criticize him but he's always like kind of a piece of shit where in this like you see the humanity the ebbs and flows of he's he has his good moments he has his bad moments he's gonna kill his fucking son but then like he kind of is able to laugh about it at the end with his like I just think I mean this is literally the movie that John Ford said I didn't know the big son of a bitch could act yeah. and that's why he started giving him these meteor roles, why he would give him the searchers or she wore a yellow ribbon or the man who shot uh, Liberty Valance, which is my favorite of John Ford's movies. My favorite movie Wayne was in, but I think his performance in this is just a little bit better. Uh, It's just like, it's, it, it is just like, you could see something there. Like Wayne could do something if he would, push himself and he pushes himself a little bit after this but you just see like those little glimmers of just ooh if he would just not have such an ego about being the movie star there could have been some more interesting things uh, in his in his path i don't know i don't know but great performance by john wayne it's 
even for non-fans like me and Kyle, it's kind of undeniable that he helps anchor this movie with his psychotic drive to have a legacy. Speaking of Kyle, Kyle, I really want to, I mean, besides what, what you, I'm sure, have taken notes on, I want to know, what did this film, how do I put this? When, once you sat down and, and watched it and, and came away from it, what, I, 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 what, what struck you the most about this particular film when you, when you watched it the first time? I think it was the cinematography. I think like in a similar vein of something like, I don't know, something like maybe The Revenant, where like you don't necessarily remember that film for its story, or the story isn't the highlight. It really is that two-hour-plus journey of Leo fighting a bear and freaking, you know, just the, those set pieces, I guess, that the camera, I guess, creates. And I think the cinematography in this movie also did a similar thing. You talked about the cattle, which I didn't even know about, which is awesome, but really making you feel like that, that, that journey across States and whatnot. And really, I guess like making that just as essential to driving the story as the actual relationship building between the characters. And before we, we move on to any kind of, sure. options, what are, what are, you know, I want to make sure we, we give the floor to, I know you said you took notes, what what are some of the points that you want to make sure we address? What are some questions you want to raise? Anything like that, if there is anything, you know, um, that that hasn't already been touched on. But Honest, honestly, I mean, you got most of them. Tom managed to put the 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 quote related to the didn't know the son of a bitch could act. Yeah, I wanted to make sure to cover that. The only thing I think maybe we didn't acknowledge, or rather, I think you had mentioned earlier, Mike. You know that one of the reasons we don't think about this movie necessarily is it didn't permeate the culture in comparison to its you know western contemporaries and whatnot and i remember doing my research about this and for whatever reason and given that you are you know sort of our uh, film merch guy to say the least comparatively comparatively oh, i know speaking, where this is going um, yeah, yeah. this this film does have a piece of i guess iconic mm-hmm. yeah. merchandising tied behind it and i was wondering if you'd be able to sort of expand on that a little bit because i know what it is but i don't understand why that in particular is sort of the i i mean you're talking about the the red river d belt buckle we sure are yeah so it was something where wayne and hawks exchange belt buckles just as like a you know you can call it a rap gift a sign of respect whatever you want but it's something that wayne sports in this film and then uh wayne would go on to wear in a number of other movies uh including other hawks movies because uh, as we noted, Hawks doesn't make a lot of westerns. He makes Red River, and then he, it's Red River, The Big Sky, which does not have John Wayne in it. Rio Bravo, which Tom alluded to earlier, we'll be covering on a future season of the show. El Dorado, which is essentially a remake of Rio Bravo, but it's John Wayne, Robert Mitchum, and James Caan. And then Rio Lobo, uh, much later which is a, just a real bummer of a movie. But John Wayne's in that as well, another Rio Bravo kind of remake. But he wears this Red River D belt buckle in all three of those films, as well as Hatari, another Hawks film that isn't a Western, but feels like one. He wears it in Circus World, North to Alaska, and McClintock. And it just became this kind of piece of iconography. I mean, you know, we talked on Rebel Without a Cause about James Dean's red leather jacket. And I think for... For Wayne aficionados, the Red River D belt buckle is that. And it was reproduced a number of times, and it was a collector's item for a while, and now you got to search eBay for it if you decide you want one, and I'm not paying that much for one from what I found there. But it's it's <laughs> just a piece of film iconography associated with 
Wayne. And I think, you know, obviously John Wayne represents a lot of things. Um, you know, good and bad for a lot of people. Uh, he's back in the zeitgeist again as we record this, as somebody debunked the famous urban legend oh, about yeah. uh there's the you know, the famous urban legend that when Sashin Littlefeather accepted her Oscar. John Wayne needed to be held back by six people. Otherwise, he'd run out on the stage and clock her. And then, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the reporter, but somebody pointed out, like, not only is there uh, almost no verbal record that that happened, but also there's footage of him backstage shortly thereafter, just very genially going, yeah, Brando doing Brando. I'm not going to comment on that. And so, uh, the fact that know. at the time he had one lung and was suffering from stomach cancer, yeah, and yeah. he was a 60-year-old uh d- debilitated old man <laughs> yeah um so what, what, yeah. what was it six people and by six people we mean six you know 12 kids stacked on top of each other with trench coats <laughs> you know, having to hold yeah. them back <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it was a, but it's it's a complicated thing um with wayne but i think that that bell buckle represents something to a certain number of people i now that i'm thinking about it i hang on i just hit me are they counting viva via as a hawks western because Viva Via is a Wallace Beery Western that Hawks worked on, but it's credited to Jack Conway as a director. Maybe that's what they mean by his first Western. I don't know. It's bugging me. Maybe but, they are. I don't know. But as we often do, and this is our final uh, movie of the season. So this is our final time this season getting to play this game. Uh, Kyle, did you actually do research on what this was recognized for or not recognized for or no? I have, I have put it this way. There are two questions okay. that we ask. I know the answer to one of them, which I are guess. Are there two questions we ask? Okay. Um, well, I'll see what you mean. Tom and Kyle, if you don't know, how do you think Red River did at the Academy Awards in its year? Huh. Interesting. I'm going to say nominated for picture, director, and screenplay and cinematography i'll say cinematography so i'll say four nominations i don't think it won any now kyle did you know this or do you or do you have a guess yourself if i remember correctly i believe it won two but i don't remember which two you do not remember correctly and also tom is is not correct uh so let me tell you it was not nominated for best picture the nominees that year were johnny belinda the red shoes the snake pit a film we covered earlier this season, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and the winner, Hamlet. Uh, Tom said it was up for best director. It was not up for best director, uh, which we know went to John Hughes when we discussed that. It only received two nominations. It was nominated for Best Motion Picture Story, which, remember, they didn't have original and adapted screenplay then. Instead, they had Best Motion Picture Story and Best Screenplay. It was nominated for Best Motion Picture Story, but it lost that to The Search, which, as we noted, was Montgomery Clift's screen debut because Red River got delayed. So it is a different Montgomery Clift movie, which Clift was actually nominated for Best Actor for The Search. And Red River was also nominated to Best Film Editing, but lost to The Naked City, which is also in the registry and will be a film we cover soon. So that is, uh, yeah, that is how it fared at the Oscars. And this was our first time doing uh, an episode all by our lonesome. This was Kyle's first official time being a guest on the show, other than the uh, time we did a practice run uh, before we launched it. 
Kyle, do you have any uh, closing thoughts on the motion picture Red River? Uh, not necessarily. You know, I mean, I think it's a it's a strong indication. You know, that if it was one of the first fifty films the registry wanted to put in there, um, that uh, obviously, if you haven't you know looked at it and you are a Western fan, absolutely take a look. Um, I feel like there's something for everybody. Uh, I guess as you had mentioned too, like it even if Westerns aren't necessarily your thing, like it is not a movie about cowboys. So don't, don't you worry about that. Well, it's actually that, funny. It's actually funny. Cause this is actually a movie actually about cowboys. That's true. Yeah, not, I guess that's, not, yeah, that's and true. And not gunslingers. <laughs> yeah, that's you true. Know. Gunslinging cowboys, not cowboy cowboys. That's fair. That's, that's fair. Yeah. I mean, again, just like you had noted, I, I do feel like at the end of the day, they really uh, wanted to look at it more for, I guess, like just the world that they, built in the time that they um that they had to to work with and whatnot so I, I i think people should seek it out if they haven't obviously before we cut away i actually i do want to mention one thing because yeah. we referenced that this movie was on was shelved for two years because of a lawsuit mm-hmm. uh, yeah. howard hawk said that this movie was a blatant copy of his movie the, the outfit outlaw. is that the, the, the outlaw. outlaw the outlaw the outlaw because hawk so worked it, on the outlaw so yeah, so it was held up for two years, and uh, I think, uh, I don't know, I think that's just, uh, it's it's one of those interesting uh, thought experiments. What would this movie have been like if it came out when it was supposed to, if sure. it didn't have to wait for two years? What's the uh, climate at the time? Is Montgomery Clift going to pop in 46, or does it need the double whammy that comes out in 48? You know, it's uh, it's an interesting thought experiment, and it's kind of funny that it happened to this one of the most innocuous of Westerns to get besieged by a lawsuit by notorious uh, sweetheart Howard Hughes. It's funny you say that, Tom. Uh, and I guess this is a good note for us to leave Red River on is next season we have another Western to talk about. We'll be talking about My Darling Clementine. My Darling Clementine actually did come out in 1946, the year that Red River was originally intended to come out. So We'll actually get to take a look at the Western film of 1946 and the climate in which it was released next season. But for season two, this is our final film of season two. I should note to everybody, there will be another episode showing up in your feed next week. We will be doing a finale episode where Tom, Kyle, and I are going to give our superlatives for the films that we covered. These 25 films, we're going to pick our best actor, our best director, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to talk about what films we're nominating with the registry, talk about the season ahead. We have a lot of fun stuff ahead. Uh, So check that out. But also stick around because we'll be right back with our picks for the National Film Registry. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfre Woodard, and Leonard Maltin, and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of each episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration, on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks. Boys, it's time for our last registry picks. And a reminder to our listeners, must be an American film that's at least 10 years old. 
Uh, so this one actually came pretty quickly to me because uh, I think the parallels are pretty uh, apparent. It's very these movies are very close to each other. I feel like they're in dialogue with one another. Uh, it's definitely one that is not going to end in the happy-go-lucky way that Mike would like more westerns to end in. It definitely ends in a big old bloody brawl shootout, but it does actually end. It, it continues with an epilogue that does kind of get to that point. It's a movie from a director whose prior two movies I did not much care for, but actually absolutely fell in love with this when I saw it as a teenager. It was on TV all the time, and it kind of just disappeared. Uh, it was. It's been hard to find. Doesn't even have a Blu-ray in America. I had to import it from I think Germany to get it in my house because I love this movie so much. It's a uh, it's a movie about a bunch of cowboys trying to herd some cattle across the country, but they get into some trouble with a local uh, town's just cattle baron, and uh, hijinks ensue. I think it's one of the most gorgeous westerns uh, of the uh, last thirty years. Uh, it's very heartfelt, emotional, very dr- dramatic. Um- Unbelievable action. One of the best third acts in any Western of all time. This is Kevin Costner's open range. Him and Robert Duvall. Uh, it's just... I think it's just a powerhouse of a movie. I ne- I would never have seen this coming because I kind of hate Dances with Wolves. And The Postman is an absolute debacle, but it's kind of entertaining to watch like this insane like Mad Max ripoff about a guy who becomes a postal worker. But this movie is just fantastic, and I think it's cl- like you put you double feature this with Red River, and it's absolutely working in tandem with each other. Uh, I love this movie, and uh, I definitely think it needs to be in the registry, if only to get more eyes on it, because it is kind of hard to see these days. Uh, open range masterpiece. See it if you can. There's also another parallel we didn't touch on in the main episode. You know, you mentioned Costner, Tom. Uh, That's right. You know, in in Yellowstone, his character is what John Dunson. No, it's John Dutton. John Dutton, and I just I the Dutton to Dunson thing. I just kept thinking, like I I feel like that had to be it some has kind to of be. influence there. Uh, Taylor um, Sheridan is, is is a smart guy. He definitely knows what he's doing with that kind of name. My pick sort of goes in a bit of the opposite direction, in terms of you know we're talking about the Western and we're talking about Western iconography. Um, and obviously the iconography of John Wayne and the John Waynes of Hollywood and the John Wayne type cowboys of Hollywood kind of losing favor uh, to the method actors, to the younger guys. You know, the we talked about in the 40s, the Hollywood Western is starting to be a bit more incisive and have a bit more depth than what we were seeing before. And then by the time we get to the 50s, by the time we get to the 50s, they're much more an examination of American and American culture. But another thing Tom alluded to that really sets up my pick well is television becomes a force, and the television Western becomes a force. And I think that when we're talking about iconography, especially iconography that stems from television and pop culture, Western, American iconography, uh, one figure and one pop culture craze uh, that I think needs to be talked about is the Davy Crockett craze of the 50s. You know, uh, Walt Disney, uh, to bring it back to that, you know, for, for his uh, television show, Disneyland, he was just trying to produce whatever he could make real quick uh, and decided to do a TV miniseries about Davy Crockett starring Fess Parker. Probably thought it'd be another episode nobody would care. And it became a huge hit. 
the TV episodes were a huge hit. Every kid wanted their coonskin cap, you know, the little raccoon tail hat, and their their um, the is it Betsy is the name of the rifle, and and it made a star out of Fess Parker, a guy who you want to talk about them saying uh, John Wayne couldn't act. Check out Fess Parker in anything. Uh, I love it, but it was such a big deal that they produced a film. They just edited together episodes of the show uh, and made a theatrical film called uh, Davy Crockett, King of the King of the Wild Frontier, and they put it in theaters, and that was a huge hit. Even though people could have just watched it on their TV, you know, th- th- the film itself was a huge hit. People wanted to see it again. When we talk about the iconography, the American Western, the American cowboy, and the American frontiersman, Davy Crockett is a crucial part of that, and at a time where the American Western was getting more uh, probing and having more depth and having a lot of gray area and ambiguity, the Disneyfication of American culture stepped in to create a commodified, bright, shiny, no hard questions asked new Western hero in Davy Crockett. I think that the Crockett craze is important. I think it's a cultural landmark. So Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, I think should be in the National Film Registry. But of course, we're not the only two people here right now. Uh, in addition to being uh, our guest for our final film, Kyle is going to uh, make his own registry pick based on today's film. So, Kyle, it's time for your registry pick. A reminder to our listeners, it must be an American film and it must be at least 10 years old. I don't have this elongated answer like like y'all do. Um, I was going to save this one for uh, the finale. This worked out better than I had initially intended after further examination. So my pick is not a Western, um, but it is another adaptation from a book like Red River. Um, It's one um, that uh, both authors uh, of the respective, uh, I guess, respective source material were not necessarily crazy about uh, the film adaptation of their work. Like Red River, it is a film that is most notably known for the uh, work of its lead actor, um, kind of in the similar vein of I didn't know the son of a bitch could act kind of way. Um, something that I guess arguably uh, sort of ascended this lead actor into uh, his sort of mainstream recognition that we know him from today. Uh, It's a film that divided critics due to its violence, something that might be considered laughable today by film standards uh, now, but um, something that probably might have contributed to its cult status. It did not spawn any memorable merch like this belt buckle, um, but it has become the, a, 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 I guess, a revered or sort of uh, reintroduced uh, into inter- internet culture uh, in the form of numerous meme templates. Uh, it's, a fir- it's a film that serves as a reminder that even movies directed by women can be protested against and labeled as misogynist. My pick is from 2000. It's the horror film American Psycho. This may be the last film of the induction year, but we still have one episode left for the season. Join us next week for a season wrap-up and a tease of what's ahead for season three. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance... 
on the National Film Registry.